Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 39th episode, I'll be talking to James Leesk, writer, podcaster, and Indigenous media critic, about John Vision and Canadian content of the 1990s. Along the way, we'll discuss how many rods you can get to a hogshead, when a pig puppet can be legally considered a person, and just how many of your beloved child stars were secretly meteorologists. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. you a beautiful and unique snowflake. <laughs> I am James Leesk. I am a writer, researcher, and a media critic. I'm based out of Edmonton, Alberta, where I was born and raised, uh, the heart of Treaty 6 country. I think what makes me a beautiful, unique snowflake is that I'm one of the very, very, very few Indigenous media critics in the world of comics. People can find me online, often spouting off about that topic on Twitter, at least my name, L-E-A-S-K. I've also got a forward in the upcoming Moonshot Volume 2, Moonshot's an Indigenous comics anthology. And I was very lucky to be able to write the forward for this version. Andy and Hope, who put the book together, asked me. It was really, really generous. And I just got my copy of it this week. And it's really, really cool to see my name in a book. And I also do a podcast that's a live play role-playing game based around the multiverses of the Marvel Universe called Exiled. I think you can find it at Exiled Podcast on Twitter. If not, I'm sure someone, Luke, our DM, will listen to this and let me know I was wrong. Yeah, former guest of the show, Luke Hare. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting because I first spoke to you when I guested on the Exiled Christmas special. Mm. And I didn't put two and two together because I had read your Red Wolf piece, your excellent Red Wolf piece. And I didn't put two and two together until at one point, like I think we were talking on Twitter or something, and I saw that other people were chiming in. I just started following back some of those people. Like, I followed Rusty Shackles and a few other folks. And I feel like it's been this window <laughs> into a part of Twitter with excellent discussions, but a little bit strange. Not going to lie. But... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, especially when Rusty and I get talking about stuff, because Rusty and I are both Indigenous, Mm -hmm. and we agree about some Indigenous topics, and we disagree about others, and we like teasing each other a lot. And so very much in the middle of a lot of these conversations, Rusty and I will often very, very consciously push it too far for everyone else, because it's a subject matter that I will literally tell them no one else is allowed to laugh at this, but that I know Rusty will appreciate. Right. He said laughing at a thing you just told not to laugh at. <laughs> well, I didn't, I, you, you didn't get it. You didn't get a, a joke about genocide here to laugh at. That's fair. Uh, that's Native people dealing with trauma. So you, you can laugh at this. You just can't laugh at that. Oh, good. And I actually didn't realize until we started setting this up that you were in Edmonton. My mom spent a, quite a while in Lethbridge in Alberta. And so it's like, I kind of, it, this is terrible. I'm, I've been in Australia for 14 years and I kind of forget that people exist in other places because every time you say, oh, I'm from Canada, and everyone goes, oh, I have a cousin in Vancouver, I have a cousin in Toronto, yeah. you never hear people from Edmonton traveling. I don't know. It's it's odd. I mean, I mean, people in the prairies would and often do describe it as the inaccurate idea of what Canada is and sort of the presentation of the prairies often as flyover country or Alberta is both fairly and unfairly, depending on who's doing it and what situation, what the context is, called like the Texas of Canada <laughs> due to our... 40-year conservative government. So no, I, I get it. I, I, I get it. It's just, it. It is, depending on who you talk to here, either a sore subject or not a sore subject. I personally don't care too much about how a lot of people else at Edmonton perceive Edmonton because Edmonton, like the city council and the culture of new media in the city is very much about Edmonton is a world-class city. Edmonton is important. We are going to do big public works that put us in debt for generations because people are going to look at it and they're going to see we're world-class. And like the only fucking city in the world that has less children than Edmonton is Toronto. (laughs) 
Like, where city councillors and stuff in Toronto will literally tweet at, like, sports leagues and people who have insulted, like, the Raptors. <laughs> and it's like, brother, I've been, a, I've been a Raptors fan since day one. There's a lot to make fun of. <laughs> yeah. I was living in Vancouver when the Grizzlies became a team, and it only occurred to me about maybe a year and a half ago to go, hey, I wonder what's happening with, oh, oh, they're not a team anymore. Okay. No, the Grizzlies, great logo, though. That was an all-time great logo. Yes, there were many jerseys around Burnaby when I was in high school. I still have, when I was a kid, I got my dad, because I was the only Raptors fan in the family. The rest of us, like, we had family out in Vancouver who weren't from there, but they moved there. They were Vancouver sports fans. Everyone else, and Edmonton is much closer to Vancouver than Toronto. And so everyone else in my family was Grizzlies fans, and I was the only Raptors fan because I was a big Jurassic Park fan. And I'm like, and even as a kid, like, I knew, I was like, Oh, they are absolutely cashing in on trends. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first time I was ever aware of that type of thing. But I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I like dinosaurs that much. I'm a <laughs> Raptors fan now. I was going to say, I can't judge. I was in Montreal at the age of 10 and really wanted a Mighty Ducks jersey. And so when Anaheim got their team, I was like, this is exceptional. Even though, yes, like you said, you kind of know this is... Yeah, Did all the Habs fans beat you up? Oh, yes. I, I was... <laughs> was in uh, St. Anne de Bellevue and then going to school in Bay Durfe and I was told by a kid I was not because you know that thing where like your mom will buy you a jacket and she'll think it's a cool jacket and you'll wear it to school and you get told by someone that because it's a Calgary Flames jacket you're not allowed to wear it anymore and you try to convince your mom no no mom I really I can't I can't wear this but you don't want to tell her why it is literally the basis of one of the most seminal pieces of Canadian media, the hockey yes, sweater. Yes, the hockey by sweater. Oh. Okay. Uh, for people, for non-Canadians, Canadian expats who don't know. Yes, this is a beloved thing. The hockey sweater is a beloved poem and then like illustrated children's book and then animated TV special made by the National Film Board that aired on CBC, which is a very Canadian sentence to say. <laughs> about a child in Montreal whose mom saves up to order him out of the Eaton's catalog. Another very Canadian thing. A jersey, but she gets him a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey and he's embarrassed about it. As well he should be. And it is such a touchstone in Canada until <laughs> we got polymer bills. It was actually the image on the obverse of our $5 bill was of children playing hockey and it featured the opening stanza of the hockey sweater in both English and French. And to this day, I can still recite both. Wow. All right, you're going to have to now. I'm sorry. You've thrown down the gauntlet. (laughs) The winters of my childhood were long, long seasons. We lived in three places, the school, the church, and the hockey rink. But our real lives were on the hockey rink. Ah. Les hivers de mon enfance étaient des saisons longues, longues. Nous vivions en toile, le col, le glisse, et la patinoire. Mais uh, la vraie vie était sur la patinoire. My heart is swelling right now. It's grown three sizes this day. Listen, I have extraordinarily complicated feelings about Canada as Andy, since I am indigenous, but fuck it. That's a great poem. It's really great. And see, now I'm upset because when I was a kid, Five just had kingfishers on them, and this is so much better. Listen, the Five has long, has long been the best bill because it had dope-ass birds, and then it had a sweet poem. The Five was where it was at. Also, my dad's friends used to call it a fin, which I always thought was really cool. Oh, hey, can you lend me a fin? And I was like... Yeah, that's, that's so much better than, what was it, like the sawbuck or whatever the others were. Maybe it's a prairie thing. We always just called it a fiver. There you go. Oh, wow. See, now we, we could just fall down the Canadian money rabbit hole. Hell yeah. <laughs> that would be fun. You remember when the Toonies were introduced? Ah, oh, that was just what I was going to say. <laughs> and for people who don't know, the Toonie is a $2 coin, which was introduced long after the Looney, which is our $1 coin. That's named that because it has a picture of a loon on it. The toonie has a picture of a polar bear on it, but it is not called, like, the poonie, which, because that would be, first of all, very awful. Or the boonie, which is somewhere on the outskirts of town. But it was called a toonie because it has two, because it's two dollars, but it still keeps the same naming convention because Canada is beyond parody. <laughs> but it was, the toonie has two metal sections that are, like, forged, that are, or, or, well, I think spot welded or something together. And the first minting of the Toonies, as anyone, I think it was a child, a child in like 1996 mm-hmm. knew, some of them, if you pushed hard enough, you could push out the center. Yeah, and there was this, this kind of fable around if you got one that popped out, 
it would be worth more because it was part of that early run. And so what kids at my high school would do in Fredericton, New Brunswick, would try and go into the drill press machine in the tech lab and try and like pop it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids in high school did that here. All that would mean is you'd have a hole through the gold bit because you had one of the good ones. Or like all these urban legends around, oh, if you put it in the freezer... One will expand at a different rate, and it'll pop out. Which, now that I think of it, we're applying a lot of actual, like, you know, science and tech principles. So maybe we did learn something in school. <laughs> did you ever hear the one, if you if you put it through the wash in your jeans, oh. something about, it might be get pushed apart by, like, the agitation of the washing machine? Which is the much dumber version of the conspiracy <laughs> theory you just listed. See, in the United States, you had the uncle that worked at Nintendo. In Canada, you had ways to try and, like, falsify, what was it? Oh, I almost said Confederate money, <laughs> where you could falsify uh, <laughs> sort of er- erroneous money. Oh, man, Canada in the 90s, it was pretty freaking great. <laughs> and what's funny is that, because I talked about this on a show way back, Australian currency is both the opposite and makes no sense in comparison to Canadian currency. Oh, it's buck wild. Because the 50 cent coin is bigger than a toonie, and... A 20-cent coin is the size of a loonie, but has like just normal edges like a dime. And then a 10-cent piece is the size of a quarter, and a $1 coin is like four dimes stacked up on each other. Or sorry, four nickels stacked up on each other. And then a $2 coin is like four dimes stacked up on each other. So it's like, like you have this incredibly heavy pocket, and you think, okay, great. You know, I've got tons of money. And you look, and it's like $3. <laughs> Man, Australia sure is a place. <laughs> New Zealand makes it worse because the one day I went over there to renew a visa, I realized that the $2 and $1 coins are both little in gold, just like in Australia, but the sizes are reversed. So, <laughs> But in other ways, like, like in your pocket, are exactly the same. So it's like you're constantly giving wrong change to people, and you don't intend to. Still, nothing's as dumb as American bills all being the same color and just exactly the same. That's much dumber. Yeah, I've never not been confused when traveling in the States. In my 35 years of life, I've never not had to search and check the corners of a bill to be like, all right, what am I giving this guy? Or or thinking I have a ton of money and going, no, it's all dollars. I have like $18. Much like their lack of the metric system, America is a messed up place. You heard it here first. Oh, tangent. I went to a rum club at a local bar, which is where you are invited there and distributors will put on shows to be like, all right, this is where this rum comes from. Here is like six different vintages. Try it out for free, which is great. Except for at one point they referred to the barrels as being hogsheads. Mm-hmm. And I, I like sat up really straight and I'm like, oh my God, five rods to the hogshead. <laughs> I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. The first time you learn that, it, you're just like, damn. And I'm going actually right now through a big casual rewatch of a lot of what I consider to be like my classic seasons of The Simpsons. It's always fun to watch, especially like season two and three, and see like jokes that I just didn't get. They just went completely over your head. Yeah. Yeah. And, or even that one's like, because I've seen almost all these episodes like a dozen times, if not more, depending on the episode over the years, because it's been like. 20 years for some of them there's still times i just like i look up and go like fuck i learned that reference last year (laughs) Uh, no the the simpsons was really interesting is because i technically wasn't allowed to watch it same just my mom believed that the simpsons were a bad influence primarily because they were dumb and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be celebrating dumb people but i i quickly kind of clued in on a couple of things Two, my dad didn't have as strong an opinion on it. Ah. The other one is that I quickly realized that there was a game that I could sometimes watch it, but if my parents laughed at a joke on the show within the minute of walking in, I could usually watch the rest of an episode. Ah. So that was that, that little gateway. Or, like, up to the next commercial break. Like, they'd come in and say, you're not supposed to be watching this. But if they laughed in the next, like, two or three minutes... Then you were good. I was good. I always thought that it was due to that 60 Minutes report that would have terrified lots of parents at the time that said The Simpsons were disrespectful and that it was stupid and that kids shouldn't watch it. But now come to think of it, the idea of the lionization of idiocy, even though, frankly, that's an incredibly smart show. Brother, that's a point I've been trying to make for 20 years. (laughs) And it's one of those things where it's like thinking back... Yeah, my dad wouldn't let us say duh, which was all the rage at the time, because he felt that it made us sound stupid. 
So maybe, yeah, maybe you're onto something there. Maybe that was the viewpoint rather than just, I saw this thing on 60 Minutes that says they're rude, you can't watch that. No, I don't think my mom saw any of those apocryphal reports. I think she watched a little bit of The Simpsons. And my mom doesn't like a lot of animation anyways. Okay. She kind of thinks it's dumb anyways. And so it was a confluence of that and her just seeing Homer Simpson being dumb. Making up her mind, and God bless her, standing up for that for two decades and counting. (laughs) Whereas I think my sister holds on to stuff that my dad or mom would have said when we were younger, to the point where they don't do it anymore. Like, we weren't allowed to swear in the house, for obvious reasons. Uh, And my sister, at the age of 37, still doesn't swear. And in the meantime, you know, I've learned that my mother swears when she's playing cards. So... I'm okay with it. But Chantal still hangs on to that. It must must have made a very deep impression on her. Mm -hmm. So we've touched on it a little bit, James. Uh, You mentioned you grew up in Edmonton. So whereabouts? Mm -hmm. What sort of situation was it? I mean, middle class-ish, two-parent, heteronormative household. Uh, Both my parents worked. Both my parents were educators. And so my mom was actually the second person in her family ever to go to post-secondary university because her family had been affected a lot more by the residential schools than my dad's family were. Because my dad's family were much more white-coated. Whereas my mom's family were all pretty dark. And my mom is like... My mom looks a lot, looks a lot like her mom and her and her grandmother and were very dark. And so like my mom and her siblings were the first generation of her family to not be affected. To not, well, not to not to have to go to residential school. They were still very affected by it. So my mom came out of that with a real strong belief in education, being able to, you know, actually go to school and work hard and get that education, even when her family was poor. So she went on to become like a really big advocate for indigenous education. She worked for the school board as, as its lead on it. She worked for the provincial government developing their social studies curriculum. And she was a member of a couple of national organizations working for native education, which is pretty cool. So I grew up with a lot of just like strong native role modeling in the house. It was pretty great. That sounds great. Yeah. My dad was a big old fantasy and sci-fi fan. (laughs) And so like I discovered his copies of like The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Dune or some of the sci-fi like Stranger in a Strange Land, things like that, and sort of started poking around there. And I got a weird love for an odd and not very often remembered sci-fi series called The Stainless Steel Rat. (gasps) Oh my God. Yes. Shit, have, we, have I found someone else who fucking knows the stainless steel rat? <laughs> of course you have, yes. Oh. Hell yeah. Because we had one of my uncle's friends who rented our basically our garage room for a little while when we were living in Vancouver. I remember he had a, a really cool dog that was like half Mastiff, half Pitbull. And he would do things like he loaned me the first Michael Moorcock book I ever read. And he just then at one point handed me this incredibly battered like those kind of paperbacks that you would buy at a bus station where the edges of the book were was red. Yeah, yeah I had a lot of those with of the stainless steel rat. Because but my, my parents, especially my mom, but to some extent my dad, were big used book proponents. Partially because my mom is such a voracious reader that she'd read like five books a week. Oh wow! And so she'd get like grocery bags of books that she'd read take them back to the We Book Inn, a local used bookstore chain. Which, by the way, I gotta say, great name for a used bookstore. It's pretty good. And another cool thing is that all of them had a cat in them. <laughs> See, that's, I swear they, they give that out with your business license for a used bookstore. Yeah. They just give you a cat. And every single one of the cats were assholes, and every one of them, there were signs all over the stores about... You know, please do not touch the cat. It will bite you. <laughs> so she'd go there and, like, exchange her grocery bags full of books for more grocery bags full of books and a small cost, extra cost. And so I started going there and getting into a lot of the fantasy that some some of us, my friends were reading, some of which I just saw on the shelves. That's where I became a big David Eddings fan. And I'm still to this day a big David Eddings fan, even though I acknowledge, and he acknowledged, he wrote a friggin' chapter of the Reven Codex about it, but how he was just writing formula. Okay. He wrote this, like, chapter of one of his anthology books that was literally just all about how, oh, this is how you write a fantasy novel, and this is the formula, and this is what I do. But I liked the character, in the individual, individual character, and dialogue he brought to things. So I got into that. I got into the Terry Brooks Shinara series. There's something about both the David Eddings and the and the Terry Brooks ones where it's like you'd see, I remember like not thinking twice about powering through all the Wheel of Time books, but then looking at like a David Eddings book. And for some reason that always struck me as slightly more challenging. I don't know, maybe because it was the high fantasy was a little higher 
and it always kind of put me off. Yeah, and I never, I never read uh, Wheel of Time, so I can't really say. I was going to say, if you've read the others, I reckon you're good. Okay. The other thing that came out of those trips to the Wee Book Inn, a uh, big fan of, was Archie Comics. Oh, yes. Because my mom would get, usually only once or twice a year, and usually just for the summer, a big, like, Safeway, like, plastic Safeway bag full of digests and double digests. Oh, wow. I don't think I ever got a new digest. I don't think I've ever bought a new digest either. I think it's a, I think it's something that stays back from my childhood is I think, I feel like digests are something you get used, but she'd get us a big bag of those. And my sister and I would read them, especially we'd read them on road trips because we had, we did a lot of RVing and we had this old, like terrible camper van that I still to this day deeply love on big, long road trips, you know, where you're going across like 12 different states and in the days before really rechargeable batteries and your family's not too wealthy like your game boy is gonna run out your cassette player is gonna run out but archie comics is there (laughs) and so i i grew up just absorbing every single archie thing i could i think you're right with the secondhand digest stuff because i have very vivid memories of trading them at summer camp like getting a richie rich comic which i had never seen before and just being like oh okay i guess i'm reading this and the print being so small i made myself seasick trying to read it but Mm -hmm. this idea of yeah having the oft-thumbed incredibly battered usually the double digest because the single ones didn't last very long because they would just get beat up or shoved in a pocket or a bag or whatever and did you get to the point where you started to notice them repeating stories? Yeah, absolutely. And I also, because it took me an embarrassing long amount of time to actually like piece together that there were different time periods for these stories, that some of these were actually decades old. I thought a lot of it was just retro for a long time. And no, it was actually from the 50s. It was just actual Dan DiCarlo work. Yeah, which, which is weird because I remember there being ads for it, and I never ended up reading it because it looked so strange. This weird throwback 1940s Archie, I remember they were advertising it in some of the, the modern comics and saying, oh, here we go, Archie Americana, best of the 40s, is that it? No? Nope, thanks Amazon, you're useless. In any case, yeah, it was this idea where it's like, okay, is Archie's car a new car, or is it still the jalopy? And how is it drawn? And like at certain times, they would switch it out and have him have a convertible. And I would just be like, wait, no, he's got the terrible old Model T that explodes when he looks at it funny. He does not have a shiny red sports car. No, 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 that's some Reggie-ass bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that was like, most of the comics I read were not superhero comics. I read Archie a ton. I read, well, I started off actually cutting out Calvin Hobbes from the newspaper and coloring it until my grandparents started giving me, like, the collections, which I didn't know existed. Like, a lot of people, I got Garfield books from the school book fair. Yeah, Scholastic. Yeah, hell yeah. And then I started branching off because of a babysitter into, like, Tintin and Rasterix and a lot of the, you know, those famous European comics that were sort of more kids appropriate. Yeah, it was only until like, it wasn't until like 2005, six. Yeah, around six, because it was like Infinite Crisis was most of the way done that I started reading superhero comics. Uh, fun fact, don't start reading DC Comics with Infinite Crisis because <laughs> you think, quote, well, everyone's in it. I'll get to see what everyone's like, end quote. <laughs> That was a bad idea. Just like, don't get into X-Men comics with the Endangered Species storyline that is a backup in all six of the X-Men books. (laughs) I had a similar idea where I would go to my local comic book shop, which I think is still there on East Hastings Street in Vancouver. And I never had any money to buy any of the proper comics. But what I would do is I would spend $3.99 and get one one section of last year's official handbook to the Marvel Universe with the binder holes in it. And my thought, of course, was that, well, look, I can't read all the comics. What if I read this, and this is like I'm reading all the comics. You know, if I'm reading one sentence that says, Spider-Man becomes Captain Universe, then that's pretty much like reading the comic, right? Yeah, sure, totally. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) You mentioned it a little bit, but what sort of kid were you in this environment where with your secondhand digests and your inexplicably crisis comics? What sort of kid were you? I was an incredibly serious kid, which I think is funny because I'm now, I'm a shit poster on Twitter. <laughs> like I, I adore shit posting. I, it is an obscene amount of fun, but I was a very serious kid. I got very engaged with things and I took them very, very seriously. And I didn't have to be told different lessons or things a lot just because I very much believed in like following rules and, and doing things you're told. So I was a lot of always a pretty 
very boring, serious kid. I like I ate every all the food I was given because my parents were just like, well, we're not making anything else. And after one time of not wanting to eat my peas, and I sat for like twenty minutes or thirty minutes at the table after everyone else was done, mm-hmm. I went like, yeah, this isn't worth it. I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat these peas. These now cold peas. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I ate them later when they were still warm. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I mean, I was, I was a good kid. I was the older sibling and I was often told I had to be a good example for my little sister. So I tried to be, you know, really friendly to people. I tried to obey the rules. My parents, before I was born, were Catholic. When I was born, stopped being Catholic because the church they were attending, the priest refused to baptize me. What? Because he said they hadn't been attending mass enough, which they, then I, later, years later, would learn was grossly against the rules. I was going to say, or even just, like, kind of a shitty thing to do. Yeah, and, like, it's kind of against the rules to deny someone salvation. I was about to say, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm not Catholic, but from the viewpoint of someone who is Catholic, the baptism stops you from going to limbo or potentially hell, so, like, uh, saying, oh, no, you didn't turn up enough, so therefore your kid's damned forever? It's awful. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty weird. So I ended up being baptized in a different church. My parents, for various, like different reasons, ended up leaving the, the faith. My dad stopped being pretty much religious at all and is now more or less an atheist. And my mom went more into maybe some Christianity, but more into the more traditional native spirituality. And so, like, we celebrated Christmas and Easter, and I remember asking as a kid, like, are we Christian? Because we don't go to church, but we celebrate Christmas, and should we we, should we be doing that? So, yeah, that's, I, was this, I was a serious enough kid that I asked if it was ethically right to celebrate Christmas if you weren't going to church. <laughs> that does paint a picture. Because while I, while I was not raised Catholic... I was raised in a household by people who had very clearly taken a certain element of Catholic guilt to heart. And I still have very, very, like, very, very positive, loving, warm relationships with my parents. And in fact, I still think that most people should feel a little worse about themselves and feel a little more shame. But, like, it was a household where, you know, there was a certain seriousness about if you did something bad, feeling bad, and a certain streak of perfectionism, to getting 90% on a test and being asked, well, where did the 10% go? Not in a super critical, mean way, but in a way where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I should get I should get higher, I should get higher. And so I was a pretty serious kid, especially with the extra weight of being the oldest kid and having to be a good brother, protecting where I could my sister from shitty kids who wanted to bully her. And whereas I think my sister was a much less serious child than I was, at least for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was very much more serious just because of that. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Is it just your sister and you? Yeah, it's just my little sister who's about two and a half years younger than me. Yeah, I'm always fascinated to ask people that where in the order of siblings they turn up because with my oddball blended family, I ended up being, for the majority of my childhood, the youngest. And then for all of my teenage years, being the oldest because my sister moved out and I acquired a parcel of step-siblings and my youngest sister. So it was this kind of role reversal, and I'm always interested to hear where people fall on that kind of, I almost said spectrum, I think that's the wrong word. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, I know know what you mean. Yeah, and like, I was a very serious, dedicated big brother. My sister has a big peanut allergy, and I still, it took me a long time, it took me moving in with someone who doesn't have that experience, have that past and like that experience. But for a long time, like years living by myself, even though my sister would come over only like not that often, we'd always hang out somewhere else i still like all my peanut butter was kept in a different cupboard there were specific utensils that were kept just for that and they were kept separate and washed separately i'd wash everything else i'd clean up the sink then i'd wash those and then i'd clean up the sink again my sister has since told me and has repeatedly told me that is unnecessary <laughs> so why were you washing specifically the peanut butter stuff separately well because that was only like i didn't have a lot of other nut stuff in my own home basically but peanut butter was always something special because uh. it was something my, I only ever had pretty much when like my dad and I would go camping just us mm. and like half our food for the weekend would be peanut butter sandwiches because what, that was the only time a year we could eat peanut butter. Oh, I see. 
And so my, and my sister's allergy was strong enough that like she could have a reaction like if someone in the room was eating peanut butter. And so since especially she like if I was going on vacation, she'd be my house sitter, stuff like that. But I was always very aware that like things needed to be clean and things needed to be almost as if it was a peanut free household, okay. even though it didn't, even though it didn't. And she would tell me. As I asked the question, I realized I missed what you that <laughs> I missed the fact that she had a peanut allergy. I think this got cut for that second. So I'm glad. I, it makes a lot more sense what you just said now. Yeah, so no, I grew up with a very serious, big sense of du- familial duty. So when you initially wanted to come on the show, what we were talking about, you wanted to talk about some of the Canadian content of the 90s, and you mentioned Jonavision, which was an absolute blast from the past. But I think we have to step back from that. I think We have to talk about Street Sense? I was going to say, yeah, we have to jump back to Street Sense because I think otherwise only you and me and Elizabeth Dua and Ali Stock will be the ones who get this and everyone else will be in the dark. So I remember Street Sense because Street Sense was the first program that I saw where advertising was questioned. And you see it a lot more now. But why don't you give your viewpoint and where you came in on Street Sense and we'll go on from there. I always I had a weird view of Street Sense because there were definitely two different eras of the show. One where it was much more like a consumer show for kids. And then the later seasons where they got plot. Wait, there was plot in Street Sense? <laughs> oh, yeah. Later in the last couple seasons, there was like a plot where like an evil company, fictional company, bought Street Sense and was trying to like make them like advertise its products, which were bad for kids. And like one of the cast members on the show was like ended up being like, I forget, brainwashers convinced to be on the side of like the suit. <laughs> It was so weird. But yeah, so basically, for folks who don't know, Street Sense was, in the 90s, a children's and teens consumer consumer reports television show on our national broadcaster. And it was somewhere, I think in the last year, there was published actually a really interesting oral history of it. Because oral histories are all the rage, and some of them are great, and this was one of them. Another great one, by the way, is History of the 90s YTV. Oh, yes. Please tell me you read that. I did. Oh, it was so good. That was so many feelings and so much experience. But yeah, so Street Sense was like shot on a ridiculously low budget with almost no oversight. They kind of just had like deadlines to hit. It ended up like a lot of the the kids, like the, the actual like, teens on the show ended up learning a lot about like video production just by like being forced to. But yeah, they did a lot of stuff about like actually looking at ads and looking at like product packaging and environmental issues. And so the big thing that Street Sense did was that they would do a segment on a product or an ad and if it was good, if it was like ethically viable, if the advertising wasn't too misleading, they would declare it okay. But if it failed any of those criteria, they would say it was fit for the pit (laughs) and throw it into like an open like sludgy manhole with like a smoke machine and like a black light underneath (laughs) and it was it was really really fun it was like public canadian tv children's ad busters but in like 1993 yeah because there's currently well it's off the air now but there has been recently a show in australia called the gruen transfer which is where they actually get advertising executives to come in and like break down okay this is what we're trying to do this is the questionable things, you know, and they'll they'll take on topics like that. And I, the first time I watched it, I went, is, is this Street Sense for grown-ups? This is weird. <laughs> and also, you know, the fact that it was coming from the advertising agencies made the whole thing kind of ring a little less true than something with the aesthetic of, hey, guys, do you remember that Amy Poehler sketch where it was like, oh, we're pirate reporters. We're reporting from the back of a van. And it was the most 90s thing ever. Mm-hmm. That was Street Sense. But when it was Canadian 90s, so it was like 1989. <laughs> no, it was fun, and one of the breakout like stars of it, as that w- were, was a guy named Jonathan Torrance, and he ended up getting after Street Sense was canceled. He got an after-school CBC teen talk show called Jonovision. Jonovision to this day is still maybe like my third favorite show in the history of television. I watched it every single day. I just quickly looked it up to check the dates. And somewhere (laughs) right at the bottom of this paragraph, it points out that Jonathan Torrance went on to be on Trailer Park Boys? Yeah, occasionally he also has like a weird like TV pop culture joke podcast, which spun off of like a show he had, a weekly show on like basic, basic, basic cable here. 
the basicest. Like so basic cable is actually you have to have advanced cable to get it. <laughs> like I'm sorry, I'm falling down the rabbit hole. Sorry, I've just been completely distracted by the fact that some 41 was on John the Jonapalooza segment. And so yeah, like Jonavision had this amazing, genuinely I think amazing focus on like actual teen issues without being super sensationalistic. And it was kind of cool to see like teens or like my age or a couple of years older on television like talking about like dating and like after school jobs and stuff like that and i really liked it and it was actually i think really that and street sense ended up being really really formative for me just because it was like children being treated like with a shocking level of respect and yeah this sort of discussion of well you have agency in these choices you can actually think about what you want to do and change it mm-hmm. and also i love the dating game Vision specials <laughs> I managed to miss Please those. Please tell me you remember those. No, I managed to miss those. Oh, they were fun. It was it was literally just like teen, like like more like dating game style teen, stuff like that. It was so fun. I'm going to put together a super cut of every time you say the word teen. <laughs> I'm not. That would be way too much work. Listen, I am all about supporting the teens when I'm not mildly afraid of them. <laughs> 1996 through like 1999, 2000, 2001 era of like canadian pop culture was so weird because like the shows like student bodies or are you afraid of the dark oh, student bodies that is one that I, w- I would say i hadn't thought about it in many years except for i did because maybe late last year i went and found its tv tropes page and just read my way down i need you to believe me when i say that i think about student bodies every week of my goddamn life <laughs> Like, every single week. Folks, for those of you who may not have been in in Canada during this time, allow me to explain. Student Bodies was a multicam sitcom, kind of in the vein of a Saved by the Bell or a City Guys or California Dreams or any of those, except for it was based at a high school newspaper and, of course, had its usual collection of characters and, you know, kids from various cliques and stuff. But it was also just, like, kind of charming. Like, kind of, like, it sucks you in in that way. and Yeah, also, you forgot one of the main shtick, the main shtick of the show, which was that... Oh, the cartoons. Yeah, the cartoons, because it, it was two competing student newspapers that in later seasons were forced to join together, and they had to become begrudging friends. The main cast, like, were the cool upstart newspaper that had, like, cartoons. Yeah, and they would they would show, like, little cutaways, yeah. There, yeah, there were cutaways with like weird, like sub R crumb esque animated segments. <laughs> it was kind of like public access Lizzie McGuire, except with more dudes. <laughs> the two things I remember most vividly about Student Bodies are one is that it was one of those shows that was so desperate for you to not know it was set in, it was made in Canada. Mm-hmm. Cause they, and they really tried to scrub it of, like, all the Canadian content. <laughs> and also that, like, one of the actors on it, Ross Hull, who was also on Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I think was on Eric's World. Do you remember Eric's World? I, I didn't watch it, but I remember it. Eric was, in real life, like, he was actually, like, a musician and like that was associated with Sharon Lois and Bram. Oh, yes. And The Elephant Show. And he got his own sort of spin-off television show about him as, like, a working musician living in a trailer park with his adopted daughter. Okay. And her best friend, Prue, who was also who was played by an actress who would later be on Student Bodies, and then later married Dulay Hill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and is now a DJ, I believe. And there was also a puppet. <laughs> was like a weird puppet pig man named CJ. I am Googling And everyone just treated him like a regular person. It was never remarked on that he was a puppet. But Bross Hull was in all those shows. And then later I visited my sister when she was living in Calgary. We like turned on the local news and Ross Hull was a weatherman. <laughs> he is still to this day a TV weatherman. But he is also like the most the most steadfast common face throughout my childhood of children's Canadian television. Wow. And it's so weird to see him like a couple of times a year on the news talking about like a Chinook. It's one of those things where you forget that certain actors will have careers outside of acting. I still get weirded out when I see Al Franken as a senator. I'm like, who would have, who would have 
freaking known that he'd not only become a senator, but a beloved and like prog- genuinely progressive one. Yeah, this is the, this is the guy who made Stuart Smalley for Christ's sake. <laughs> and there, but and especially in Canadian television, especially Canadian live action television, mm-hmm. like it's such a small market that like people end up going around in it, and then they just get regular jobs. <laughs> it's still weird to this day. Like learning that, like that Nicholas Piccolis from TV, <laughs> oh <my laughs> video game and arcade top ten. Nicholas Piccolis is that his real name? He is actually like a mildly beloved radio DJ in Buffalo, New York, in a station that also services part of the GTA. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I'd forgotten that Nicholas Piccolis was a thing. <laughs> Again, I think about Nicholas Piccolis every week of my life, at least once. <laughs> and so, like, that one to me was the weirdest thing about living in, or growing up in a media environment that, on one hand, had a lot of foreign, specifically American content, but also very uniquely out of a lot of countries, actually legally mandates that every TV station and radio station have, like, I think it's still 30% Canadian content. Or as it's belovedly referred to in Canada by millennials, CanCon. Yeah, gotta have that CanCon. Even if it's just reruns of Road to Avonlea. Yeah, and so it's so weird. It, I remember like learning when I, when I got more on the internet and started like making friends in America and the UK and Australia on like meshes boards. Like learning that people had different... Like not everyone knew Sloan. Not everyone knew PJ Freshville. <laughs> yes. And not everyone knew Jonovision mm-hmm. or the short-lived mascot for the after the, the teen-focused after-school portion of CBC's content at that period, Coquette. I was I was going to say you can either go with Coquette or you were going to go with Snit from the Zone, and I'm very glad you went with Coquette because Coquette. Again, anyone who wants to to just get a glimpse into this, Coquette was. Was she a bulldog? Like, was she? She was like this weird pink CGI dog that would come on and tell you what was coming on next. It was really weird. And I mean, sure, Snip was a piece of bubblegum with a TV that had giant teeth in it. But at least you could kind of get that. Well, and they at least set up a rich. YTV set up a rich fiction around Snip. (laughs) And I'm only half joking because they legitimately did base a weird amount of, like, programming especially like around big of like seasonal events around the plot of the the PJs in the zone and snit <laughs> one thing i genuinely like love about looking back on being a child in canada is just that there were those weird things and I assume everyone has them whether it's various regions in america or i know british people i know have talked about specific British children's television and things like that. Yeah, Blue, uh, Blue Peter comes up a lot. Oh, that guy. <laughs> and here in Australia, we have there's Cheese TV and Play School. And I've been at that party where everyone's talking about who's the best Play School host or the different Cheese TV people. And I'm listening and I'm just like, I have no idea what any of you are talking about. I mean, I assumed the only child to tween to teen to young adult media in Australia is the Wiggles. <laughs> Although... Slight tangent. The Wiggles were a real band before they were a children's band, and they were a band called The Cockroaches. And I found one of their albums at a flea market, and it's still, I can see it from here. It's sitting on my shelf. Speaking of which, since this is, people will know the exact dates we recorded if they'd love checking my tweets then. I learned today that I, in, the, in 1996, Oscar Isaac was in a ska punk band, and he was a straight edge kid. I've immediately forwarded that to Aiden Sullivan, who then responded saying that I was the second person to do so, because that's pretty much Aiden's brand. Oh, man. <laughs> God, like, I think maybe Ska was actually good. Yeah. Hey, it was. Next thing you know, you'll be saying the Swing Revival was good. No, no, no. <laughs> Jesus Christ, no. <laughs> Fuck Brian Setzer. And the Johnny Favorite Swing Orchestra. God. No, Swing was a mistake. It was a mistake back when it was, a, when it was new. And it was a mistake in 1998. And you know what? I'm just going to say it. Swingers is a bad movie. <laughs> well, the thing is, I remember I watched that maybe a couple of years ago. And that was a movie that I, when I was 19, I really, really loved because I was 19. 
And I think it's a different... It's like a Kevin Smith film. Exactly. And it's like, you watch it now, and rather than when you were 19 thinking, oh, these guys are so cool. And now you watch it and you go, oh, these poor fuckers. You, none of you have any idea. But even just like from a technical standpoint, like there are shots that are out of focus because they snuck a camera into a bar and are just like shooting across John Favreau, which shooting across John Favreau.tumblr.com. It's, it's the kind of thing where you admire the hustle, but you're also like, this was a bad movie. <laughs> that said, I mean, I don't dislike John Favreau movies. I mean, I'm very on brand. I like Chef. I was going to say, anyone who wants to not just get a viewpoint into shitposting, but incredible recommendations for grilling recipes or roast chicken, go follow James. I have a lot of fun with my brand on Twitter, <laughs> which is hardcore indigenous politics, shitposts, and unreasonably firm food opinions. <laughs> Though really, I only have a, like, I know it's my, it's, it's my bit that I have unreasonable food positions. I really only have, like, two strong ones, and the rest of the, I'm fine people eating whatever. You people, you don't need to at me saying, like, taunting me about if I think it's okay that you put ketchup on something. Like, you shouldn't most of the time, but do it. I'm not your, I'm not your mom. <laughs> so if, if ketchup on things is the one, what's the other? Well, specifically, my actual argument is that it's specifically the ketchup does not belong on hot dogs. Oh, Okay. And that's mostly because I find that I don't think ketchup goes well. Like, uh, to me, like, ketchup actually blasts out my palate when I have it on a hot dog. All I taste is, like, ketchup. I don't taste the sausage. I think mustard is just better. But people can have it. They'll be children, but they can have it. <laughs> so what's the other opinion apart from ketchup? open face sandwiches are not sandwiches. What are they? They're shit on bread. <laughs> or if you want to use a fancy French word, they're a tartine. But there is no sandwiching happening. It's like, it's stuff on bread. It's good. Just don't call it a sandwich. I'm looking at you, Scandinavia and Eastern Europe. That's what happens when it's just white people. <laughs> I swear to God, that's what happens. Is it like everything's a sandwich? No, it's not. See, see, now I just want to create a bonus episode where James Lee goes through the sandwich alignment grid and says which ones are wrong. I just think it's a poorly constructed grid because it's easy to think two very opposite ends of it are sandwiches. Ah. The one I always go with, and again, like, I really don't care much many things are sandwiches. It just bugs me that people call open face sandwiches sandwiches because they, they're not. <laughs> they're a piece of bread. Chris Sims of Warrock and Ajax and one of their bonus Wait, episodes. wait, wait. Did, did you start the is a hot dog a sandwich thing? No, 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 no. That okay. was, I don't, know if, I don't know if she started it, but Charlotte Finn was certainly the person who weaponized it. <laughs> I contributed to it. I will back up Charlotte and shit posting 99 times out of 100. But Sims talked in their bonus concept, content about, you know, is X a sandwich? Really, it's like, if someone came over to your house, they, they came open the door and you said, oh, I'm in the kitchen, I'm having a sandwich. And they walked in and, you, and saw you eating that this food item. How nutter butters would they think you were being? <laughs> and I like that because it's ultimately not that helpful because it's still incredibly subjective. It still sets up basically like a political sandwich spectrum inherently. But I mean, that's it. Like, is it a sandwich to you? Then it's a sandwich unless it only has one piece of bread and stuff's on it, in which case it's toast. <laughs> See, I'm going to drop an image into the chat and I want you to tell me if this is a sandwich. First, I'll get you to describe it and then we'll go from there. Because this is something that my girlfriend sent to me last week. And it made me so angry. Ah, there we go. Image transfer completed. Tell me if this is a sandwich. I mean... Okay, for, first off, for the listeners, describe what you're saying. Okay, it is a sandwich where instead of bread, it is slices of crispy pork belly. And then stuff is inside it. And yes, it's a sandwich. <laughs> it's not just a stuffed piece of pork belly? No, no, because it's, it's, two, it's two separate pieces. Something is being sandwiched. Listen, do you think do you think a KFC Double Down is a sandwich? I think it's an abomination. Listen, it's also kind of tasty. <laughs> uh, I have a friend with whom I make bad food decisions. We had those. We constructed Luther Burgers from Tim Hortons and Wendy's. And we also made double Double Downs, where if the conceit of a Double Down is that instead of bread, it's chicken. The conceit of a double Double Down is instead of bread, it's Double Downs. <laughs> so picture, if you will, a Double Down. Then in between, some cheese, bacon, and mayo. And then another double down. It's, it, it doubles all the way down. It's, it, it, listen, that was not good. That was, that was a joke <laughs> that, that very likely almost killed us. I maintain, much to my girlfriend's chagrin, that I am functionally immortal now if I've eaten that and survived. 
<laughs> All this fast food's trying to get through the door, and you're indestructible. No, I think it's fair to call that a sandwich. It's just very far out on the sandwich spectrum. And on that wonderful note, I think we'll wrap things up. So, James, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? The best place to find that is my Twitter account, which is at Leask, L-E-A-S-K, because there you can find a link to my about.me page, which I don't remember, and that has a link to say my Comics Alliance stuff. Rest in peace, homie. More detail, I'll join you. And it's also where I post new stuff when I do it. And the next month and a bit is going to be when the copies of Moonshot Volume 2 come out. That's an indigenous comics anthology. And I wrote the foreword for it. It was really, really fun to do. And I'm really, really, really proud of what I made. That's in the, in the next few weeks going to be coming out on Comicsology. And then in June, it's actually going to be coming out with the physical edition. And that'll be available on online retailers if you, uh, where you'll be able to buy it. And I hope people do. And if you follow me on Twitter, I'll tell you when it's out so that you can buy it. You can also find me every Saturday on Exiled Podcast, which is at Exiled Podcast. And I think ExiledPodcast.com. Again, Luke Hare will tell me when I'm wrong. And then I'll <laughs> shitpost him. And there you can find me and some friends doing a Marvel Multiverse live play RPG where I play a Wendigo. And I always specify a Wendigo because if Luke ever kills my character, I'm just going to be another Wendigo. <laughs> because somewhere, some when, someone's going to get hungry in the Canadian movies. Yeah. Unless there's Snickers. Listen, listen, I'm sure it happens all the time. <laughs> all right, James. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. No worries. Thank you very much for having me, man. And I'll talk to you uh, soon, probably on Twitter. Thank you very much to James Leask for his time. When discussing James's signature cocktail, he said he tends to stick with either neat bourbon or a G&T or a Caesar. Now for those who may not know, a Caesar is a particularly Canadian form of Bloody Mary. Whereas instead of Bloody Mary mix or tomato juice, you use <sighs> Clamato juice, which is a mixture of clam broth and tomato. I, I got nothing, guys. Instead, I came up with a savory bourbon drink that has all the spice and smokiness of a Caesar, and, as far as I know, contains absolutely zero mollusks. And so I present the Pickleus. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of simple syrup, and three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. Add two dashes of your favorite hot sauce, two dashes of Worcestershire sauce, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Shake vigorously and strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Top with black pepper, garnish with a twist of lemon, and maybe, if you've got one around, a celery stalk. This libation will make it into anyone's cocktail and beverage top 10. Is that his real name? Enjoy! is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. 
If you have a few dollars in your pocket and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or as much as you want. You can make it rain. Like, for example, it's raining just outside of the room that I'm in. You can maybe hear that a little bit on this recording. I've seen lightning reflected in my computer screen as I've been talking. Patreon backers get early access to episodes as soon as they're finished. They get physical mail. They get care packages. For example, Remancel, they got a very fancy care package hand-delivered from me this week. Full of some original art, a whole bunch of comics, some Polaroids, and a whiskey glass, just like those I use in the cocktail photos that accompany every episode. Thanks again, Ree, for your support. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. That helps people find the show. Or you can write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word and find all the music I've ever used on the show going all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's Clumsy by Our Lady Peace. And when I was 16, it was really, really important to me. And listening to it now as an adult, I can tell you the lyrics are about trying to help a friend with anxiety. Who doesn't love that? Next week, I'll be talking to DJ and pinup artist Cherry LaRuckus about John Wayne and both kinds of music, country and western. Join me, won't you? Well, I did the very silly thing of getting up at like 6 a.m., and so I've just been sitting here going, all right, what useful things can I do before I have to record the podcast? And the answer was read a lot of Twitter, eat, a, eat like a peanut butter sandwich, and then like, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> just go, oh, all right, I've got to do I, I, wake up, I wake up at 6 every morning anyways, and oh, yeah. That, yeah, I just am like, okay, I'm going to check Twitter. Maybe I'll make, maybe I'll make some toast. <laughs> See, do you, was that because you had to get up early for a while and you just fell into the habit, or have you always been an early riser? I've always been a relatively early riser, so, like, the latest I've ever slept was, like, one time I slept in until, like, 10 a.m., and that was after I'd worked a 16-hour overnight double shift at the, at the hospital. Oh, Jesus. And I got home, and I got home at, like, 8. <laughs> wow. All right. Just, like, my, eight, like early, like early morning hits or something I'm just like okay I'm up and if now it's the point like if I wait if I'm in bed any later than like nine I have to do a literal thought of oh shit I should I should I've wasted half the day <laughs> yeah whereas I just had a, a hell of a commute to my office and so I was getting up at like 12 minutes to six uh, which started off at, at 6, and then it was, oh, maybe I'll do it at 5 to 6. And then it was maybe 10 to 6, and then it was 12 to 6. Every time I reset the <laughs> alarm, it would go a little bit earlier to think, oh, I'll get that extra time. And it's like, no, you won't. You never will. And no. now it's like I'm not working. And so my brain, like, kicks me into gear at, like, quarter past 6, thinking, oh, well, you've had a long sleep in. Get up. get Go do something. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because, like, my girlfriend will wake up, like, when I get up for work and... Like I'll kiss her and like tell her to have a good day, and like she often like won't even remember it. <laughs> oh yeah. She just like I'll have conversations with her and where she is awake, and she'll just go back to sleep and not remember any of it. <laughs> See, when Kimiko and I uh, moved in together a little over a year ago, a law was made that I was not allowed to engage unless engaged with. Like for example, <laughs> if I was if I was awake and doing stuff, and she like got up to go to the bathroom or to like grab her phone off the charger or something. I was not allowed to start a conversation because if I did, that would bring her into the world of wakefulness, and she would be grouchy about that. And like I said, we'd be talking, and then she suddenly like her face would change, and she'd go, oh, "You engaged." <laughs> <laughs> and and see the funny thing for us is it's the same rule, but it's not for her benefit; it's for mine because she'll just forget something, mm-hmm. and if I'm counting on her remembering something, I need to wait for her to engage with me because otherwise, because that means she's awake. That means she's up. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, it was your fault for trusting me at this time in the morning. (laughs) So really, who's the real villain here? Yeah, she's like, listen, she's like, I told you. I told you. And you did it anyway. (laughs) This is Edison High. Of course, to me, so is this. The food stinks. We got a vice principal you don't want to mess with. 
and the school papers run by a couple of real sick puppies. It was all pretty boring until this new girl arrived and I thought, oh, come on, look at her, you know what I thought. Anyway, she said we should do our own paper to show what Edison High is really like. So now I'm stuck sharing the newspaper office with these two idiots, my best friends, Chris and Mags, and the new girl, Emily. Oh, and by the way, the guy drawing the pictures, that's me. Food and bodies. Real life, it's high school.